We have been going over a restructure and a reorientation for our church based on different priorities that a leadership team um, that has been constituted has been looking over. You'll see a lot more of that next Sunday, but there's basically been four priorities that we uh, felt represent who we are as a body and a people. The first priority is that our church is going to be all about making disciples. The second, moving from there, is that in that making of disciples that we are going to have family-first discipleship that begins here at home and particularly in our homes and then expresses into the next field of local or in our area missions and then expands to the ends of the earth in foreign missions. If you even look at our calendar as a church, we begin January with Pro-Life Sunday and focusing on things with the family. Then we move into the spring and we talk about the local ministries we support in March and April. And then now we come to the end of the year in November and December and we begin to have a conversation about the ends of the earth and God's global vision to expand His kingdom. So I want to talk to you a little bit about where we're at. Uh, This church partners with a network of other sister churches to advance the kingdom. And since 2010, you have been a part in this church of planting 9,400 churches in North America. Now, I don't got a graph for this, but let me me talk about, because Randy will get the percentage. 2010, 9,400. In 2021 alone... 740 churches in North America. So we are in the upswing of putting more and more churches in America. If you watch the news right now, you would think that Christianity in America is dying. But we're planting more now than we did even in 2000 here in North America. In Denver, that shady place... You know, on the other side. Do you know that because of various political policies, there is 106 people groups that represent 170 languages that are just within your reach. Let's bring it a little bit closer to home. I got an email from West Elk Family Church in Hotchkiss, Colorado with a request for prayer that they were under such intense spiritual warfare here in their town in Colorado because there were groups holding seances for the demonic that were literally trying to build altars in town while promoting through this gay and lesbian relationships. At the same time, there are Wiccan um, individuals selling potions and spells. That's right here in your state don't have to go to West Africa. It's here. A little bit closer, uh, talk to a brother. Uh, He shared at the state convention, our sister church in Telluride. He was holding a service. couple walks in. We've had this here at our church. Come in and ask, is this an affirming church? He's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. He says, we affirm the Bible. And that began strings of hate speech against the church, persecution against the church. He talked about that sometimes his Monday practice was that regularly he would come and have to get dog excrement off of the door of the church because people regularly came by and put it. That's that's right here in Telluride. That he would come into the church and in front of the church, people shaped stones in the shape of a pentagram in front of the door of the church. So his regular activity, start ministry for that week, is to start kicking rocks and clear pentagrams in front of your door. Let me expand out for some of us that are just now getting a taste of what some of that pushback and adversity looks like. Most of our brothers and sisters around the world, that's the only kind of church they've ever known. You have lived in a fantasy land where Christians have paid very little in America to live their faith. There are seven 
1,000 unreached people groups in the world. And nearly all of them are hostile to the gospel. Resistant to the gospel. There are 4.5 billion people that do not have the joy of salvation that youth at the camp this week experienced. They live under what Solomon would call under the sun meaninglessness. And you have the hope of Christ that they are dying without. Our IMB partnership by the grace of God and network with other churches has resulted in our engagement with this vast lostness. 247 people groups have been engaged. Previously unengaged, now engaged. Because Christians are giving and praying and going. They're not making excuses. And now there are people today that are gathering in their tongue with their tribe and their people, worshiping Jesus, singing very similarly. God is so good because somebody didn't stay in churches like this. Come on, they went. 769,494 people around the world heard the gospel. 86,000 plus were baptized. Around the world, we have planted over 18,380 churches. 127,000 pastors trained. 144,000 plus have become new believers. You're Jehovah's Witness, we've already reached all your numbers. Here's the question that every missions month demands of us. Are we going to take what the Bible is going to call us forth into seriously? Are we going to take every tongue, tribe, and nation seriously? Are we going to take the commission to make disciples of every nation seriously? Or are you coming into church today thinking it's somebody else's job? We live, church, in a battleground, not a playground. And it is my ambition for our time in the Word today to allow the Word of God to teach you to pray like it. The missional zeal of any church is proportional to their prayer life. Not their education. The missional zeal of any church is proportional to their prayer life. Not their bank accounts. Every missional failure in the world is a failure to pray. I don't care if it's Telluride or Timbuktu. Now, here's where you doubt me. Right there. Because you do not believe that. Because it is so easy in a Baptist church like this to start another Bible study. Brothers and sisters, I love the Bible. I'm in. Alright? But if we started another prayer meeting, you ain't coming. And I get it. Because I've come to prayer meetings where we're praying for your brother's sister's neighbor's cat. Or their gossip gatherings. Where we're spreading gossip about people under the guise of praying for them. Or we spend 45 minutes making lists and 45 seconds praying for them. We are better at making lists than we are praying for the list. Now tell me I'm wrong. And 
Church, church, we spend more time trying to keep sick Christians out of heaven than we do trying to pray lost people out of hell. We pray safe prayers about sickness, but we don't pray dangerous prayers for God to save your crazy relative. We spend more time, listen to this, trying to keep sick Christians out of heaven than lost people out of hell. We have, and tell me I'm wrong, impotent, unbiblical, unattended prayer meetings that don't worship God in awe, that don't trust His sovereignty to do all, that don't beat down the door of heaven for the sake of the nations. And, and then we get surprised when we go into our culture and they mock the idea of sending thoughts and prayers. The only thing worse is sending vibes, like you're a dryer or something without one leg. And the reason they mock that is because of a low view that says that prayer is nothing but a gesture that you do in place of actual action. They see it not as the earth-shaking reality that God has given for it to be to His church. That's, that brings us to Acts 4. Acts 4. And Acts 4, which was read earlier, is the longest prayer in the book of Acts. It has language similar to Pentecost in that they are going to be filled with the Spirit. Notice, it's people filled with the Spirit, not the room. The room shakes, but it's the people with the Holy Spirit. See, we want to pray God fill this room with the Holy Spirit because I want the feelies, but we ain't want God to fill us with the Holy Spirit that we might go out and shake some rooms. So whatever Pentecost is, the one thing that we know from this text is that it's not unique and it's not isolated. What can happen at Pentecost and what can happen here is meant to be educated into us to be repeated. The primitive church here shows us how the early church prayed. And I'm going to tell you something really incredible about this passage that I don't have time to get into. And that is, if you look at Matthew chapter 6 and you look at Luke chapter 11, they literally follow the pattern that Jesus laid out for them in the Lord's Prayer. It's unbelievable. If you will look at this passage, it talks about the sovereign glorious name of God. They're going to revere it. We, we, we just went through Halloween, Hallow's Eve, which comes right before All Saints Day, All Holy Ones Day. Hallowed be thy name. The same word. When we hallow God's name, we talk about how holy and exclusive and amazing the name of God is. That's what we do when we hallow it. They start with hallowed be thy name. Then it moves into this idea of the kingdom coming to earth and the kings of the earth pushing back against it. It's the invasion of God to a rebellious world. Then it goes down into needs, whether that's relationship needs or resource needs, daily bread, help us to overcome temptation, forgive us of our debts, and then thine is the kingdom and power forever. God, give us everything we need from your power source to invade earth with your kingdom. If you look at the Lord's Prayer and you match it up over this, it's unbelievable that Jesus taught them to pray. And they did. There is power in praying the way Jesus has discipled you, church, to pray. That we don't come to prayer with our vain imaginations of what God thinks. we got to tell God what He needs to do. But we come to God sovereignly seeking His will. It's amazing. Five-sevenths of this prayer is them confessing who God is. Is that how you pray? 
and get it clear from this passage, what we see is God is the all-sovereign giver of the word. Sovereign in ways that should make your pride uncomfortable. All-sovereign, unlimited, unfettered, sovereign of the universe who does whatever he pleases and it greatly pleases him to get his word boldly to the ends of the earth. And thus they bring their prayers in alignment with his will through the quotation of scripture. That is, your primitive early church is going to, in this passage, pray the word of God. And this is where, families, we should begin discipling our kids to pray. It's not just repeating what they heard a deacon at church praying. We should teach them to pray from the word of God. Because in the word of God, we meet the sovereign giver of the word. Prayer is not so much about getting what you want. Prayer is about getting who you want. And see, we don't want God. We want His stuff. So we go to Him for His blessings. And we don't go to Him for His heart. And so we miss Him and the blessings. Church, when we are distracted from prayer, we are distracted from God. By something lesser. Satan thus does not have to destroy you. He merely has to distract you. Young people, you think that device in your pocket is a small thing? It's robbing you of the greatest thing in the universe. A relationship with he who created the universe. And then adults act like that's not you too. He doesn't have to destroy you. He merely got to get you addicted to a screen. So he employs weapons of mass distraction. And you ain't got no time now. You're too busy. Because the next episode starts without you even clicking on it. Because if you just scroll for five more minutes, you're going to see something you've never seen before. And what we're doing is we are junk fooding our soul, which is only satisfied in God. Social media, if nothing else, will show in the last day that our prayerlessness is not a result of a lack of time. You have all the time in the world for what matters to you. So, in this passage, starts in verse 23, it says, and when they were released. So push pause. In the previous parts of the chapter and beyond, what we know is that they were out preaching the gospel. And because of that, a man at the beautiful gate is healed. Now, what I love about it, if you look at verse 22, the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. What a, I love the Bible. That's the Bible saying, if it would have been done on a young person, that's awesome. But this dude's 40. It's like nearly dead. And if God can save a 40-year-old, you know, like anything's possible. And he does this miracle. What happens in the passage is that, as I've taught you before as we went through Mark, miracles, signs, are not the message itself. It's a signpost pointing you to the message. So what Peter does is he goes and grabs the signpost of the miracle of God's healing of this cat, and he grabs the sign and he turns it into a billboard so that it is explicitly clear that this healing is not Benny Hinn about some faith 
or about money or about even the person that's healed. This miracle is all about Jesus. He grabs the sign and makes it a billboard. Like the dancing pizza guy who has the sign and spins it. And you can't look away. He wants to to draw all of your attention. Not to him. Not the one healed. Draw all your attention to Jesus. The result of this church is persecution. Which the scripture says, all those who seek to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's the promise you're not trying to memorize and quote to yourself. But it's fact. You live for God, it will cost you. Period. No exceptions. Christians above homosexual groups, Christians above Jews, above Muslims, above any group in the world are by and large, by far the most persecuted group in the world. 360 million Christians live under what sociologists call significant persecution. That is more Christians in the world than there are nearly people in America. Lifeway research says one in seven Christians lives under persecution. So let me count one, two, three, four, five, six. We can go through here and if it ain't one in seven of us, then it's seven out of seven somewhere else. Do you track with that? Again, Randy, no charts, it's, but it kept the math simple. Thousands on thousands of your brothers and sisters will die for Jesus this year. Just like they did tens of thousands last year. Just like they did the year before that. Just like they did the year before that. It is normative, this adversity. When he preaches, they push back. So what is the context of their prayers that we're looking at? The context is they are being told to stop. They are being silenced, snuffed. There are people trying to control them, trying to limit them, trying to oppose them, trying to shackle them. Here's the end of it. They are trying to get Christians to quit. Doesn't matter how, just quit. Their response, when they were released, verse 23, they went to their friends. And they reported what the chief priests and the elders and the, uh, had said to them. Push pause. I hope that you have friends in the church. That when it hits the fan and it gets hard and it hurts, you go to and you can pray with them. I think a tragedy of individualistic American Christianity is there are so many people that walk in services like this, and if their life falls apart, they got nobody in the trenches praying with them. It gets heavy for them, and so they got people to help carry their burdens. Went to their friends, and when they heard it, they got the report of what is happening with missions around the world. They lifted their voices together to God. Voices together. There is unity in the church. There is agreement. This is why Satan, of all the things that he does to the church, attempts to divide it. That we might not stand in agreement praying. What did they do? Their response to people trying to throw a wet blanket on their missional activity, their response was to petition God in prayer. Was to petition God in prayer. Let's be honest. Is that your first gut response when people push back against you. I uh, heard this story from Biola University about petitions. Um, petitions are powerful. 
in the fall of 1963, I was not there. All right? uh, but it was a, a, a challenging time for our country, as I've heard. Um, the fall of 1963, the country was reeling because a beloved president, I guess it depends on what team you're on, um, was assassinated. And it shocked the conscience of the American public. And so, as the nation was reeling and trying to find itself, there was a girl on the East Coast who called into her local radio station and said, uh, I have heard this band from overseas and I want you to play it. The DJ, like, no, this is back in the t- day where it's like you didn't choose your own music. Somebody in the station somewhere controlled what you listened to. All right? So, context for you, young bucks. You turned on the TV, you watched what they, ha- they put there for you, okay? My kids have no concept of this now, right? They call it, and the DJ's like, I've never heard of that band, we're not doing it. Next day, girl picks up the phone, calls the DJ, I want you to play this song by this foreign band. DJ's like, I don't know who that is. She goes through her whole same spill, hangs up. Next day, next day, calls, gives her spill, Pleads her case, DJ, no. Next day, next week, every day, next month, every day, calling. Finally, the DJ, annoyed by the persistence of this young lady, calls a friend of his to find out who this four-person boy band... See, boy bands are not new. You just thought the 90s happened. Boy bands are not new. Who this four-person boy band from England was. And the song, I want to hold your hand. He takes the record, plays it, and cultural anthropologists would say this is a part of what would be called the British invasion. There would be a follow-up of stones and monkeys and other one-name bands because of a petition. Because of somebody that refused to stop. That kept pleading day after day after day. See church, there's power in relentless petitioning of God. Jesus taught us, pray and don't lose heart. And he would even go on to talk about the story of a judge and a widow. And that the widow... Because injustice just beat down. And even though the judge was a wicked man, the widow every day was bothering him. And Jesus put this forth as an illustration for us not to lose heart or cease praying. As though there's a divine invitation for us to wear God out. Do you believe that? A divine invitation to wear him out. Now here's my problem with that. My kids asking 42 million times for something I said no to will literally put me in the loony bin. Like I can't handle it. Matter of fact, when my kids, I will give them an answer and they'll just keep going. And it makes me dig my heels in as a parent. That I even more now, because I've already told you and you keep asking me, out of principle I'm not going to give it to you. Right? Like, my kids just got a problem with dairy. Like, we love dairy in the Corso household. Vitamin D milk, they drink it a gallon a day at our house. All right? Like, strips of, like, string cheese, just down the hatch. Shredded cheese on everything Mexican. And eventually, you got to look at your kids and say, if you eat one more piece of dairy, you will, you will be in the bathroom forever. It's like, I care about you. The no is a no. And then their mom comes in just dishing out ice cream. Like, I, 100%, even if I dig my heels in and out of pride, have no intentions of ever saying yes to my kids ever again. After 42 million times, I just give up, right? I know you haven't. You're such a good parent. So disciplined and principled. But I, listen... I break down. I am exhaustible. Right? Now, if I wear down when I do not want to, how, church, listen to this. 
how much easier is it to move God's heart when he asked for you to do it? How much easier when he invited it? He dared you to. How much easier is it? Jesus says, ask, seek, knock. The New Testament teaches us, there, you have not because you ask not. Paul says, as was mentioned in Colossians, continue praying steadfastly. I love what comes after that sentence. Nothing. It doesn't say continue praying steadfastly for an hour. It does not say continue praying steadfastly for a day. It's like, okay, so, so when do we stop? He's like, yeah, just keep going. Till eternity where you commune face to face with your father. Do you notice that among all the things that Jesus did, nobody ever asked Jesus to teach them to walk on water? Or even really to how exactly is the mechanics of casting out demons? But you know that they came to Jesus and they watched his life. The God-man who made time to commune with his father. When they saw the place that prayer had in the life of Jesus, they, the disciples came to him and said, Jesus teaches how to pray. You don't got anywhere recorded a seminary class where Jesus taught them how to preach. But you got a place in the Bible where Jesus taught them how to pray. Verse 24, and we, look back first. When they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord. Now, this is wild to me. This is a word that is curious. You don't see it in English because we just translate it Lord. The common word for Lord is kurios in Greek. This is like despotes, which is where we get like a despot. Like if you have a dictator who's like a, in a negative sense, that is they have complete and unhindered and absolute power and authority. That's like a despot and it's terrible when any man has that. But God here is being called upon and his name hallowed and revered as the one who has complete and absolute authority, sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. He's the creator who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. Notice they affirm verbal plenary inspiration of the scripture. What I mean by that theological statement is that when David is speaking through the Holy Spirit, it is God himself in Scripture speaking. That Scripture is the very voice of God. Notice that God begins their prayers because God is the author of Scripture. So when they pray Scripture, they are entering into a conversation that God began when the Holy Spirit authored the Word. Your prayers don't begin with your discipline. They begin with God's Word. And they come about because God keeps his promises of his word. Through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against. That's where he's drawing off of this Old Testament story of people being against the will of God. And they are experiencing people who are against the will of God, against the Lord and against His anointed. Verse 27, For truly in this city were gathered against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. So one, they see the Old Testament is asking a question, why they do that? Then they see in Jesus... An answer that they provide. That is, it is according to God's foreknowledge and His will. Verse 28. To do whatever your hand and your plan predestined. I don't care what you think about Reformed theology. The word predestined is in the Bible and every Christian must grapple with it. That God's sovereignly predestined to take place. They come to the question in the Old Testament and see that God is the one 
who orchestrated that the sin of evil Gentiles would put to death the Lord Jesus Christ. And that would bring about a greater good. God is a sovereign. Get this right in your mind right now. God is a sovereign who uses the wickedness of man to accomplish his will. God uses the rage of the Gentiles to bring about your salvation in Christ Jesus. Period. That's what that passage just did. So if we're coming and we're praying as though God is bound or limited by man's wickedness, we are not praying to the God of the Bible like they prayed. He is so wise as to use even their wickedness to bring about a good they didn't intend, but he did. Worship him. Lord, complete and utter authority. Now, verse 28 is just unbelievable here. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Look at verse 29 now. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. See them, Lord. And grant grace. Bestow my mercy. Give, grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness. I love that. The Greek word here is hold nothing back. Free. Let it loose. Grant that we would speak it in boldness. So pause. Here's one thing we can agree on that this is saying. They did not pray to be kept safe. They didn't pray to be kept safe. They prayed scripture and they prayed things that would deliberately put them in danger. This is a dangerous prayer that they are praying from the word. Risk is written all over this passage. Because they are refusing to turn down. Matter of fact, they're asking that they might continue with the boldness that they began with. And there are some lukewarm Christians that need to pray that prayer. They prayed things that would deliberately mean they were going to be in unsafe areas. And that's what happens when you pray the Bible. But your salvation is eternally secure. What can man do to you? They prayed instead that they would not be watered down. I want to be bold. I want to be passionate. I want to be all in. I don't want to hold back from my neighbors. Why? Because your neighbors know when you're saying something that you're embarrassed about. When you're reluctant. When you're afraid. When you're ashamed at work. They know. It smells off. That you can, with great exuberance, go to a Broncos game in the middle of winter and paint your body and scream in fandom. But when it comes to talking about Jesus, you whisper, if you speak at all. It just smells off. They prayed for boldness that they could tell it all. So, I know there's people in here that I've had conversations with that you've wrestled with what is your calling in life. Maybe this is one thing we can kind of distill out of this passage. Go where praying the Bible takes you. When you open your Bible and you pray your Bible, wherever those prayers take you, go. 
So here's, the, here's where this gets into missions month. And maybe here's the big, the big nugget. You forget everything else. Take this away. What's happening in this passage is the same adversity that would be used by the enemy to silence our prayers is the same adversity God intends to use to deepen them and to further his mission. Unbelievable. The same adversity that the enemy wants to use to make you hesitate, reluctant, water down, chill out, the same adversity that would silence you, that the enemy would silence you, is the same exact adversity that God is going to redeem to deepen their prayers and to further the mission. This is what it means for God to be sovereign over your prayer life and over missions. Is that which others mean for evil, God works on your behalf for good. You want to act like I haven't been living in that verse right there? It feels like I, preparing for this sermon, have thought I, nothing I have preached to you in my five years here is more important than what I'm telling you right now. Nothing. When I did, I did my review uh, as an elder here at, like last spring, and they had a really good question of what do you feel like in your tenure here is your greatest failure? And I, without a doubt, I feel this in my bones, that I feel like it, my greatest failure here has been to lead this church to be prayerful above all. That that the culture of prayer in this church is not white hot. Prayer feels to us optional, not essential. It's things we do in between things in the service. It's things we do before we eat. It's not, it's not our breath. It's not our life. It's... It's not necessary. It's not that we don't have good strategies. It's not that there's not good Bible studies and preaching. There's not that there's not good other things. But every failure of missions is a failure to pray. And we, by and large, I just don't know that we have got it yet of what God has enabled us to do through prayer. I don't know that I've gotten it. If God wills the evangelization of La Plata County and you refuse to pray, then you are opposed to the will of God. If God wills for the evangelization and the Christianization of North Korea and you are failing to pray, you are opposed to the will of God. And insert any excuse you want. I'll insert mine, you insert yours. But at the end of the day, we are opposing God who wills through the means of our prayers to change the world. To fill us and transform us by the Holy Spirit and to shake up the world. Now, while you stretch out your hand to heal... And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. When we don't pray like this, we rob God. Forget about robbing Him of money. We're robbing Him of glory. And when they had prayed, the place where they were gathered was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Listen, and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So let me go a little further. You cannot speak the name of of Jesus with boldness without grace-enabled prayer. Because all it, all it is with your excitement is mere personality. But if you're going to speak with this kind of clarity 
sincerity, passion, and boldness. It is grace-enabled through prayers like God in His Word shows us right here. Prayer is the fuel to the engine of the missions movement, and it is irreplaceable. Charles Spurgeon was a great preacher, end of kind of the Puritans. He was called the Prince of Preachers. And he said of this, I would rather teach one man to pray than ten men to preach. And that's the Prince of Preachers. Nobody held preaching in his generation higher than Spurgeon. And Spurgeon said, I'd rather teach one to pray than ten to preach. So here's the reality as we come to the persecuted church, as we come to missions, as we come to the great um, global mission field in our generation that we've been called into, I want you to consider your prayer life in this way. If God answered every single one of your prayers right now with yes, and the next one with yes, and the next one with yes, and the next one with yes, would the world change or would just your world? Would North Korea change? Would lostness in Nepal change? Or would you just have a few more comforts? That might actually alienate you further from God. If you got them. If God answered your next dozen prayers automatically with yes, would the world change? Or would just your world change? Would others experience Christ? Or would you alone be affected? Here's the last point in, in the tone and tenor I want you to walk out of this building with. I want you to walk out of this building not guilt-ridden. Because I, if I came and drive-by guilted you about prayer life, which I could guilt my own self, guilt's going to run out of juice. It doesn't work. I'm not talking about... The point of this sermon is not that you walk out the door and say, yeah, I should pray more. If that's your mentality, you've missed it. That's not what I'm talking about. If you walk out the door saying, I should pray more, you've missed it. The point is joy, excitement, and power. That's at your feet. It's accessible in the morning. It's accessible at 2 a.m. It's accessible at lunch. You can drive your car and tap into it. I'm talking joy here. I'm talking power in your life. Power found nowhere else. So if you don't grab a hold of this passage and let this passage grab a hold of you in such a way that you feel as though you're a kid at Christmas that can't wait to play with a new toy you've been given, you've missed it. If you don't feel like a man who just got a new set of golf clubs and you can't wait to get out on the course and see what they do. A woman with a new dress that you can't wait to put on. If you, if you don't feel like a Colorado person with a new Subaru to put 300,000 miles on and brag about. If you don't feel like a doctor who just found the cure for cancer and can't wait to get it to the nations. If you don't feel like a soldier who just received a weapon that can turn the tide of the war. If you don't feel, walk out of here thinking about prayer like a grandkid that has a date on the calendar with Papa to go fishing and spend time. You've missed it. God has granted you, every one of you Christians, a treasure for the sake of global missions. A treasure. There is no excuse that every one of us is not engaged with missions. Because we can pray.
I'm going to pray for you, and then we're going to take communion. I want you to bow your heads. There's maybe one here that doesn't know Jesus. And if that's you, you do not have access to the Father through the name of Jesus because your sins remain. And Christ has come to remove your sins that you might have a relationship with God. And I'd invite you to call upon the name of Jesus and be saved. If you'd love to talk about that, I'd love to catch you after the service. There are some people here, God is calling into His mission fields. To labor in prayer for the sake of the nations. There's some people here, I believe in this service, that God has called you to go have a conversation you've been avoiding like the plague. And there might be somebody here that God is calling to leave this church for the sake of planting churches among unreached people groups. So I'm going to pray now and I'm going to pray that whatever God has led you to do here, chief among it is to repent of our sin and our distractions and our prayerlessness. I, want to, I just want to invite you to trust grace and to do as God leads. Dear Heavenly Father, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right here as it is in heaven. In each of my brothers and sisters' hearts as it is in heaven. May they rightly align themselves with your perfect will. Your plan and your hand is laid out for them, a calling over their lives that is inescapable. Father, would you move hearts and minds in such a way that we could know your word, that we could pray your word, that we could walk out your word. Whatever business needs to be done here for my brothers and sisters, God, would your Holy Spirit just fill them and grant them life, grant them direction, grant them vision. God, I pray it in the strong name of Jesus. Everyone said, Amen.